you have this sort of difficult conversation of what, what is, what's the difference between something that's kind of making you want to stop and something that's forcing you to stop. That Triathlon Show, episode 101. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Alex Hutchinson, award-winning endurance sports journalist and author on the show as the interview guest. He is the guy behind the super popular Sweat Science column that is now in Outside Magazine. It was previously on Runner's World. And as you listen to this episode, his new book will have been just released today or in a couple of days ago or something like that. The book is called Endure, Mind, Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And as you know, based on some previous uh, episodes that I've done and interviews on the mind and how it uh, imposes some limits on endurance performance, but it can be elastic, as we'll see in the interview. I'm super fascinated about this topic, about the mind, about the brain, and the psychology and mental side of endurance sports. So, yeah, this is uh, this is an ab- absolute pleasure. And I've read Alex's book, Endure, and it's fantastic. I highly recommend you go and get it after listening to this interview. I won't give any spoilers, but uh, it's about the mind and the body and how they work together and how you can bend and in some cases not bend your limits but but there's always a reserve tank that you can tap into just a little bit more almost always i should say that's that's what we'll get into and how that applies to endurance sports first let's thank our sponsors precision hydration they make electrolyte products that can be tailored to your individual needs based on your sweat rate and your sweat sodium content If you haven't already, make sure that you listen to episode 49 of this podcast with Andy Blow, the founder of Precision Hydration, for much more information on that and uh, on cramping, for example. And remember that until the end of February, all of that Triathlon Show listeners can get one free box or tube of Precision Hydration Electrolyte product on precisionhydration.com. Just use the discount code thattriathlonshow, all one word, to get that box for free. And of course, the 15% discount will remain if you have already gotten your first free box. This episode is also sponsored by Triathlon Corner. They have a great selection of products to very, very affordable prices and great deals that ship worldwide. Of course, great customer service. Go to triathlon-corner.store, mark it as a favorite in your browser. Uh, I've done it already because you know that you, as a triathlete, there will always be things that you need to buy. If nothing else, then new shoes every 500 kilometers or so, which uh, comes pretty quickly. So make this where you get those shoes. Once you have your size, you're all set and then you can just order them online. Much more convenient than going to the store. All right, let's not wait any longer. Let's just hear the interview with Alex Hutchinson, uh, the author of the new book, Endure. So today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Alex Hutchinson to That Triathlon Show. Alex, how are you today? 
I'm good. Thanks a lot for having me, Michael. It's my pleasure. I mean, you're probably one of the people in the uh, endurance sports industry that I've been following for the longest since uh, my pre-triathlon days, even just as a runner. I was reading your sweat science blog uh, on Runner's World, and now that has moved to outside online, and I'm still following it. And uh, you're also now becoming an author with uh, your new book endure coming out as uh, this podcast episode is released pretty much so uh, yeah what, what is endure about in a nutshell well uh, yeah i guess the, the basic question it tries to answer is is what defines the limits of endurance uh you know in under various contexts what are the limits and that's really another way of saying i guess why couldn't i run faster than i did when i was competing seriously what 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 were the specific things that held me back because i felt like if I could answer those questions, then you have a better chance of changing the limits. How would it have made you felt if you, or how does it make you feel if now that you know so much more? Do you have any regrets about, and do you know why you didn't run faster? And uh, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it takes three hundred pages to answer that question, but um, uh, and not to jump ahead too far, but I would say the one thing that if I had a time machine and I could go back and, and talk to my twenty-year-old self, I would say pay more attention to the the role of the brain in dictating endurance. We all sort of understand it on an intuitive level, but I think it's much more like it's physiologically real. The brain plays an important role, and I think looking back on my career. There are a lot of times when when my my brain or my mindset held me back, and maybe with a little more attention, I could have I could have done better on that score. So so that gives a great uh, introduction or a teaser into what the book is about. But if you define it in a few sentences, what uh, what what's the main message that you want to to give to the reader in the book, and what are the things that a reader will take away from it? Yeah, I think the, the the biggest thing that 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 I took away, and I hope others will take away, is how important the brain is in dictating limits that that feel very physical to us. So it's like we all understand that if you're not motivated, you're not going to perform at your best. But uh, the the limits that feel physical, like being out of breath or the the burning in your legs, they're ultimately mediated and controlled by the brain. So that's not just sort of self help uh, mumbo jumbo. It's this is like where the physiology is going so hopefully readers will take that away then the understanding that that limits are negotiable as a result uh and, and so that uh you should never accept as a final answer if your legs say no i can't i can't go any faster you should you should you should negotiate with your legs yeah and, and finally i hope readers will, will, will take away some good stories to, to you know to share on the on the next long runner ride because there's also as well as the science i tried to tell some of the great stories about people pushing or transcending their limits yeah totally i'm, I'm reading the book we talked about it in the pre-interview chat at the moment i'm not completely finished with it yet but it's the one book that i'm currently reading of a lot of we could jump ahead in the queue uh, ahead of a lot of books that i have on in, on, in my queue and i'm really really enjoying it and those stories are are brilliant i think that the within the breaking two project breaking two hours for the marathon is a brilliant part of the book uh, so so yeah i highly recommend it uh, even though i'm not quite finished yet but but getting there so wh- why did you decide to write it how did you come across uh, this topic on on how the brain uh, limits your physiology yeah th- there's a couple of answers to that i mean so i i, I started out as a journalist uh, about 10 years ago a little more than 10 years ago um and coming from a science background i had been a physicist and so i was 
switching to journalism because I wanted to write about stuff that I cared about and was passionate about or spend my time on that kind of stuff, things like running. But I came from a science background, so I started writing about the science of endurance. So in, in a big picture, that, that's where it was sort of like using my strengths to do something I was interested in. But the particular interest in the brain, I, that kind of evolved as I was writing about this stuff. I found that I was less interested in writing just about VO2 max and more interested in trying to understand the riddle of, of the brain's role. And when I thought really, you know, while writing this book, I was trying to trace that interest back and, and, and try and figure out where it came from. And, and ultimately, I think it really started for me. I, I had a really unusual race experience when I was uh, 20 years old. I'd been, I was a middle distance runner. I ran 1500 uh, for the most part as a high school and university runner. And I'd been stuck. My, my sort of mission was to break four minutes for the 1500. And I'd been stuck at exactly the same level for about four years through high school and three years of university. Um, and so I, I really had the sense that I was approaching my physiological limits. I'd been, I'd been, uh, you know, training at a higher and higher level and, 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 but I just didn't seem to get any faster. And then one day I had this bizarre race where on, on a really crappy track at a, a really crappy meet where the timekeeper read out the wrong splits to me. Uh, I'm still not sure why either, either he started his watch at the wrong time or he was, uh, it was in a French part of Canada. Maybe he was having trouble translating for whatever reason, he read the splits, that misled me into thinking I was having an amazing race, that I was running way faster than I'd ever run before with no increase in effort. And this had this the, the result of totally tricking me into thinking, this is like, this is my day. This is a race for the ages. Just go for it. And so I went for it. And all of a sudden in one race, I improved my best time by nine seconds. I went from 401 to 352, which is an enormous leap for someone who'd been training hard for four or five years. And then even more bizarrely, in my next race, I ran three seconds faster than that. And in my next race, I ran another five seconds faster. So I improved 17 seconds in three races, all of which, as far as I can tell, were triggered by this sort of bizarre uh, uh, misunderstanding during the first race. So ever since that moment, I, I've kind of known that it's not just about how your workouts are going or, or what your VO2 max is, that there's something else has to fall into place to really get the most out of yourself. And and, and I, I'm still sort of chasing that. That That's that's kind of what I was trying to figure out in writing the book is how do, how do I bottle that? Yeah, yeah. And that's a great background. And you split the book into basically three different parts where the first is the explaining the different hypotheses of the mind's and muscles role in endurance performance and then you have some limits and factors like first hunger heat and so on that uh, kind of impose real limits but also that can be bent on endurance performance and and then finally in the third part you have some limit breakers and we'll go into each of these parts a little bit and and the first with the different ways the models of how the brain and the muscle interact so you have you describe both the models of professor samuel marcola who was uh, our guest in episode 17 and professor tim noakes who was uh, on episode 43 so so many listeners will be familiar already with their different models but can you just give us a, a quick recap of them and, and how they are different from each other yeah so uh, uh, both their models have, have evolved a little bit and so um it, it's sometimes hard to know exact to, to know exactly what the best definition is but basically tim noakes would say that the brain is wired in a way to anticipate danger and protect you from it so it won't let you run yourself to the point where your heart or your brain runs out of oxygen and so it will impose against your 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 will unconsciously 
impose. So you're you're running, and as you as you get tired, you'll find that your brain is recruiting less muscle. It's not letting you push as hard as you want to because your brain is worried you're in danger. And then when you see the finish line, that your brain knows you're out of danger, and, and you're and you're suddenly able to sprint. So he, that explains why most most athletes can sprint for the finish line. Samuel Marcora. He argues that that's actually a little more complicated than it needs to be, that there's no unconscious central governor holding you back for your own protection, that really all it comes down to is effort and motivation, that all the things that happen when you're uh, exercising, so you're you're breathing harder, you're you're running out of oxygen, your metabolites are accumulating in your muscles, all these things contribute to exercise feeling harder, and ultimately the decision to slow down or to stop is just because the effort is harder than you're willing to tolerate in that given moment. So, so every every exercise failure is ultimately a conscious decision to say, well, this is too hard. I can't sustain this. Um, so, they both argue that the brain is 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 what ultimately makes the decision about limits. But they differ on whether it's conscious or unconscious, whether it's anticipating in advance or just responding in real time to what's going on. And I would in, in, an interesting side point maybe, but but how would Samuel Marcora explain the finishing sprint? Does the effort decrease as you see the finish line approaching, or, or what's the mechanism behind that? Well, I, I, so he, for him, that it's a, a balance between effort and motivation. So I, I think he would say that with the finish line in sight, uh, your your motivation goes up. But also probably your perception of the effort, how you you frame it. So you're asking yourself, is this something? Not just not just is this uh, effort tolerable right now, but is this something I can keep tolerating until the end of the race? And so an effort always feels harder if you think you're going to have to keep doing it forever or f- for another hour. So you're able to uh, um, kind of reconceptualize how hard it actually is. Um, yeah, I, and I, I'm always hesitant to put words in other people's mouths, so I, I, he might have a different explanation. But I think I think there'd be some complex interplay between how we perceive effort and also how much effort we're willing to tolerate at that yeah, moment. Yeah, that, that makes makes no, sense. Yeah. Uh, so are there still in the old days uh, people thought it was all about VO2 max and and uh, anaerobic threshold and uh, and all those sorts of things? Are there still people or researchers that that are hesitant to to accept these? Uh, models, the psychobiological model of uh, Professor Marcoda or the central governor model by Tim Noakes, or what's the current status of that? Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting. So when I discovered this research, it, it for anyone who's competed as an athlete, it just feels kind of intuitive that, yeah, of course, the brain ma- the, the brain is, is, is exerting these controls. And, and so my sense when I first started reading this research was that, okay, yes, these ideas are controversial, but it's really just these people who have built their careers on the old model, who are unwilling to accept the new science, and you know, it, all these objections will eventually fade away. But as time went on, and I, I've, I've talked to more and more researchers, I realized that actually, no, that's not that's not true. There are some very smart people who who think that actually it, it really is just about the body. And so, for example, uh, in following the, the Breaking Two project, um, you know, Andy Jones at the University of Exeter is a um, one of the lead scientists who, who worked with with Nike, but who's also worked with a lot of top athletes, most notably Paula Radcliffe, and he would be one who 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 would say, "Look, uh, you know, we can go into the lab and I can measure uh, Paula Radcliffe's uh, VO2 max and her lactate threshold and her running economy, and I can tell you pretty accurately what she's going to run for a marathon, and I can do that for other people too." And so 
he has a much greater. It's not that he. It's not that he thinks the mind is irrelevant. Everyone knows that, uh, you know, motivation matters, and that you know some people push harder than others under certain circumstances. But in terms of there being some sort of magical central governor uh, that that's holding us back, he. I don't think he buys that. He would. He would say, listen, it's it, it, your your body is a machine, and 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 it has some some ultimate capacity. How much you get out of it on any given day may depend on how you're feeling that day. But ultimately. If you want to run a faster marathon, it's all about, uh, you know, tweaking the parameters of that machine. Mm, yeah, and that, that's very interesting that that there's still a kind of a strong contingent of of people that that are opposed to to those models. But but at the same time, it uh, doesn't sound too illogical either when when you put it that way. Uh, from again, putting a bit of words in in Andrew Jones's mouth, but uh, but yeah, it does does make sense uh, on a level. So. Okay, let me ask you this: what, what is your personal opinion on on these different models? How how do you f- think that things work? Yeah, uh, that's a <laughs> that's a great question, and and uh, one that I really should be prepared to answer at, at the end of this book. Honestly, um, my my answer is I don't I don't know yet. Uh, so I I would say, well, first of all, I would say every time I'm finished talking to a very very good scientist, I I I, I finish the conversation thinking. This guy's right, or this this person is right. I, you know, how could I have ever believed anything else? This person is absolutely right. But then I go away and think about it, and it, and it doesn't always seem so obvious. Um, I would say, on a logical basis, and uh, and a sort of based on the experimental evidence and the, the sort of the the niceness of the the simplicity of the theory, I really like Samuel Marcora's psychobiological model. That that. Fundamentally, it's it's a balance between effort and and motivation, and and effort is a physiological like it's not just sort of a fuzzy concept. It's 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 a real thing that's dictated by what's going on in the body. Um, intuitively, though, when I race, I still like uh, I, when I when I when I think back to how racing feels, the central governor just feels so right. It feels like there's some unconscious involuntary uh, distortion of my physical limits that's released when I get to the finish line. So, um, you know, I, I, I think the debate gets polarized into, uh, is it, is it theory A or theory B or theory C? And, and one of the things I get to in the book, uh, later in the book is the idea that actually, if you, if you start to really scratch beneath the surface, um, the differences between the psychobiological model and the central governor theory start to seem a little less stark. And that they're actually really talking fundamentally about the same thing, because because what Ross Tucker, one of Noakes' former students, has argued is that how does the central governor anticipate your needs? It anticipates through the sense of effort. It's the sense of effort which is sort of integrating all these signals from your body. And so that so that, so both Marcora and Noakes' school would converge on the idea that your perce- your perception of effort is the final arbiter of of limits. So so I guess I would say you know a hundred years from now. Um, will people be be teaching the central governor or the psychobiological theory? I, I, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if what they're teaching is is incorporates some elements from from both of them. Yeah, and uh, what you say there about them being converging on m- many different aspects—it's true. I actually <laughs> accidentally saw a, a Twitter battle raging between Professor Marcoda and Ross Tucker and some other scientists, and about uh, how. They are maybe arguing on on the semantics and and not so much, which kind of uh, puts some limits on on how to bring the the science forward because uh, people are more 
invested in their own models, even though they might be fundamentally very similar, if not the same. But uh, yeah, that's, I, I would just jump in and say, you know, you've had Stephen Chung on your uh, podcast a yeah. few times. I think one of the things he always says whenever I talk to him is, "Science is a human endeavor," and so people have stakes in their theories. They have ego. They have they they understandably want credit for their work, uh, and so. Uh, ultimately, it's it, it, sometimes the debates get, and you know, as you can see on Twitter, sometimes the debates get personal, um, and uh, you know, these things are difficult for someone who outside that debate. It's hard for me to to or for anyone else to kind of police who's right and who's wrong because it's there's a lot of subtleties, but there's a lot more than the science that goes into these debates, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. That said, I, I have to say that uh, from a logical perspective, I really like uh, Samuel Malkoda's model as well. Some of the you mentioned it in your book, the the research with uh, when they just put screens that with uh, blinking faces, they were smiling or sad. I think it was, and, but the, the people that were pedaling bikes in front of them couldn't see. They could they couldn't see it, but their mind, their brain, some, somehow perceived it and and saw it. And the smiling face, the group seeing the smiling faces. Uh, did much better in the time to exhaustion uh, test and that's something that uh, i don't know how can a central governor model that's trying to protect you does does that model use really use smiling faces to as an indicator that you're not in as much danger as you uh, as you may as the brain may first perceive based on the muscles i don't know i think that that research at least fits better with the uh with marcola's model of perception of effort governing but let's move on to the next uh topic and uh, and that are some of the limits that you talk about including hunger first altitude heat uh, can you just give a few examples of how these limits uh, while they at some point definitely are hard but they, they can still be bent and, and can be fussy at times depending on the individual and the circumstances yeah so so yeah the, the I, I basically the middle part of the book had six chapters where I t- decided to talk about these specific limits pain muscle oxygen heat thirst and fuel and you could if you believe the brain centered theories of endurance you could argue that all of these are sort of sub that they all mix together ultimately that pain and and heat they're both acting on the same ultimate limit that which is you know your sense of effort or something like that so the the, the divisions are sort of arbitrary in, in a way but obviously you have to find some way of talking about these things so so i kind of tried to divide them into these categories and and each of them is is a real limit like you said in, in some ways if, if i put you in a room with no oxygen you'll die if i if i don't let you have food or or or, or water you will die. These are real physical limits, and, and and no amount of you know psychological skills training is going to allow you to 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 uh, get over them. The question is, to what extent are they real limits in the way that we experience them? So, like if if you take someone who is not a habitual ex- exerciser and have them start running, you know they'll stop and they'll usually tell you something like, "Oh, I had to stop because I was really out of breath and my legs were hurting." And it's, well, okay, so why did you have to stop, though? Well, I was really out of breath. Was, okay, but why didn't you just keep running even though you were out of breath? And and so you, you have this sort of difficult conversation of what's what what's the difference between something that's kind of making you want to stop and something that's forcing you to stop? And so ox- oxygen is a, is a great example of this. Like, I, I, I love asking people, like, what do you think is the world record for longest breath hold with no tricks, no like breathing oxygen before pure oxygen or anything like that. Just, st- just go and go ahead and hold your breath. How long can people hold it? 
And people are astounded. I was astounded, certainly, that the, the record is like 11 minutes and 35 seconds. That's the official record. The unofficial record is even a little bit longer than that. And so how is it that some people can survive without oxygen for that long when most of us feel like we can't hold our breaths for more than a couple minutes? And you know, the answer is, okay, if you hold your breath, uh, after a couple minutes, you'll start getting these involuntary contractions of your breathing muscles. The, they Basically, your body has decided that your brain is crazy for trying to hold this breath, and it's forcing you to breathe. It's breathing on its own. And that's when most of us break our, our breath hold. Um, but that's not because you're out of oxygen. That's actually because carbon dioxide levels are rising in your blood, and it triggers a warning signal that forces you to try and breathe. And what, what free divers can learn to do is just ignore that signal. They just say, okay, I hear the alarm bell going off, but I'm not going to panic. And, and so they suppress these, these breathing contractions, and they just keep holding their breaths until literally the point at which the, uh, the oxygen levels in their blood reach about 30 millimeters of mercury, which is the, the le- roughly the level that's required to sustain consciousness. And they're actually capable of continuing to hold their breath until they pass out, which is why freediving is, is so dangerous, because if you pass out when you're underwater, you'll drown. Um, so we can see that like I can hold my breath for two minutes, and that feels like a serious, serious physical limit. Like there's nothing I could possibly do to get to two minutes and five seconds. And someone else is saying, no, that's not a physical limit. I can ignore that and hold my breath for 11 minutes. And it's not its not that these people have enormous lungs or anything. I mean, they, they may have large lungs, but there are people, very small people with tiny lungs who can hold their breath for eight or nine minutes. They've just learned that that's the difference between the warning signal and the actual physical limit. And that's a kind of pattern that recurs for a lot of these limits that the feeling that you can't go on is not is it comes far before the actual physical brick wall. One thing that I found interesting in in that part on limits was the pain chapter when you uh, talked about how people have been measuring in endurance athletes compared to uh, normal sedentary individuals the pain threshold and pain tolerance and how the pain threshold is was pretty much identical between between the two groups but then the difference was that the endurance athletes had much higher pain tolerance so it's not that they don't feel pain but they can just tolerate it much better and and i think in many of these other limits as well that it's that's sort of what you're saying here right with with the breath holding as well they they do get those signals even though they may be but with time can suppress them but but it, it's just about how you how you tolerate them and, and how you uh how you react to them simply is that uh, like a correct uh understanding or interpretation yeah absolutely and, it, and you know it varies there's different kinds of signals and different sort of skills that you learn but for for pain people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out okay why is it that athletes have better pain tolerance and the you know nobody knows the answer for sure but the 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 basic theory is that it really comes down to psychological uh, coping skills of learning to for example distract yourself to not think about the pain also just learning to reframe it and understand you know once you know that the pain doesn't mean that your leg is about to fall off that it just me it's just warning you that you're going hard then, it, then it's it's possible to ignore it because you can remove the emotional component. You, you're not scared of the fact that your your leg is is uh, is your legs are hurting. You you just understand that it's information that's telling you, hey, you're going pretty hard. You're probably not going to be able to stay sustain this indefinitely. So you you learn to 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 reframe and 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 uh, reinterpret these signals. And the same is true for things like thirst. And you know, it, it's kind of a cliche, but. Uh, you know, people who've been running for a long time often sort of laugh at 
you know, laugh at the idea of, of you know taking a belt full of water bottles when you're going out for a half hour run. It's like, what's the worst that happens if you don't drink for half an hour? You get thirsty. But so what? You're not gonna you're not gonna pass out. But for people who are inexperienced with exercise, that they they have they don't know that being thirsty doesn't mean that you're gonna you, you keel over indefinitely. So they have fear that's attached to this signal. So once you can just interpret it as a signal, then you can learn. So in, in some ways, just the, 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 the simple knowledge that it's just a warning sign, not an absolute endpoint, helps you to push farther. And, and I guess the one thing, I, the last thing I'd say on this is, I think this is an underappreciated part of people getting in shape and becoming better athletes. Uh, that, yeah, if you, if you get up off the couch and start training, after a year, your body's going to be a lot fitter, but you're also going to be willing to tolerate uh, a lot more discomfort. And so there's this sort of old debate of, you know, who suffers more, a two-hour marathoner or a four-hour marathoner? And so, well, the four-hour marathoner is out there pushing their limits for, for twice as long as the two-hour marathoner. It's like, yes, but actually the, the person – now, it's not just about speed. It's about training experience. But the experienced athlete who's been training for a long time has learned to kind of hold their finger in the flame for longer and for closer to the flame. So they're – in general, not, not universally, but in general – Someone who's running a two-hour marathon is 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 able to make themselves suffer for, to a greater extent than someone who who is maybe a, a just a casual runner who hasn't actually gone through that experience of learning to push through the warnings the warning signals. Yeah, and and it's funny because I just recently interviewed Malcolm Brown, who's the the coach of the Brownlee brothers. Oh, he's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, you were at, uh, at the same conference recently, right? At a triathlon yeah. science. Yeah. And so I, I may actually have mentioned this on on another podcast recently as well. An interview I did with with uh, Kerry Cheadle, who's a mental skills coach. But I, I just found it so fascinating that I have to bring it up once again. But but the way one thing that he brought to the British team when he joined the British triathlon was that in the WTS uh, circuit when they have a lot of races there was kind of this tendency for athletes to think that there's always another race but they kind of changed that and the uh, Brownlee brothers are of course the the prime example of that and in when they're preparing for big championship races that they want to get into the mindset of you'll uh, you'll die after <laughs> after the finishing <laughs> line, and that's the only thing that's left, and 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 that really puts helps you put everything on the line and uh, and push past those limits. So so let's let's move into the uh, the limit breakers, which is the third part of the book, and you talk about brain training and brain stimulation there, and uh, can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, when you start talking about limits, the the obvious question is how do we change them and how do how do we how do we push them? And I, I you know I should kind of take a step back here and say, look, if if you want to get faster at triathlon, the first thing you can do is get better at running, swimming, and biking. Um, that's the, the the obvious thing. So dealing with the brain is kind of the icing on the cake. Uh, I think it's really important to get the most out of yourself, but but it doesn't mean that that uh, you know you could you can become a great triathlete just by by sitting in on the on the couch and thinking about it. But but in terms of the, the the interesting thing about trying to manipulate the brain is that it's it's a different approach. To, it's it's independent of all the things you might already be doing, you know, in in, in physical training. And so, can you train the brain? So we've been talking about Samuel Marcora. He's he's been working for a couple of years on this idea that he calls brain endurance training, and he's identified some some of the sort of aspects of cognitive fatigue that are associated with uh, endurance performance, like 
what what are the you need to have good response inhibition, uh, which is the, the kind of thing that allows you to, to ace the marshmallow test, right? Someone offers you one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later. Uh, good endurance athletes are the ones who, when they were four years old, were able to say, yeah, I'll, I'll wait and take the two marshmallows later instead of taking one marshmallow now. But you can, there are ways of taxing those, these sorts of specific cognitive traits. So Marcora uses these sort of, these computer tasks um, where you sit, you know, and on a screen, letters or numbers flash on a, on a, on the screen and you press a button corresponding to the specific pattern of letters or numbers. And it's not hard, but it requires a lot of concentration and that, and it's mentally fatiguing. And so the idea is if you do this over and over again, your brain will, you know, physically, physiologically adapt to become more resistant to this kind of mental fatigue. And it should be able to transfer then into physical tasks so that when you go and then try and run for an hour at threshold pace, you'll find that a little bit easier because running at threshold pace fundamentally is a challenge to your ability to stay focused and to keep pushing yourself. Um, so I would say that the general picture on this is it's an, and there's other approaches too that I talk about in the book. There's people who are working with mindfulness-based approaches to, to, uh, to, to enhance uh, athletic performance and endurance. Um, the general picture is these are intriguing ideas. They're not fully validated yet. I think Marcora's studies are interesting, but they need to be sort of validated in real-world scenarios by other researchers and so on. So I, I, when people ask me like, hey, should I, how can I do this? My, my general advice is, ah, you know, this is interesting stuff. People are figuring out how the world, how the brain works. But, you know, it's a big time commitment. I, so I tried brain endurance training. I tried a, a 12-week program before a marathon. Um, and, it, you know, it, it takes time. And you before you invest that amount of time and effort, uh, you kind of want to make sure it's validated and it's working or else, and, and, you know, otherwise spend that time, you know, doing a little more running. Yeah, so um, we, the, we need to wait for a few more results then. That, that's that's my take. Look, I mean, everyone has a different risk-reward ratio, and some people really like the idea of being early adopters, under, understanding that what they're adopting may not yet be validated, may turn out not to be optimal. Um, and that's okay. Like, as, as long as, you know, everyone is free to do, to, to do what they want, as long as they understand what the state of the knowledge is. So I don't, I don't, what I, what I don't want to do is give the impression that, you know, Samuel Marcora has proved that you can improve your, your marathon by 2% by, uh, you know, playing this computer game. It, this idea is out there, but it, right now it's, it's still a sort of, it's a hypothesis and it's, it's early going. This stuff is super hard to test because it's really hard to do a proper, uh, placebo controlled test of this, of this kind of thing. So, um, I think it's a really, really cool idea, and I'm excited to see the research. But for me personally, especially given the the, the time and effort it takes, um, I, I wouldn't be out there trying to uh, use it in my next race yet. Yeah. Um, what, what about brain stimulation? Yeah, so I think you you know probably as much or more about brain stimulation as I do. But I basically, the, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, the basic idea is you know you take a take a nine volt battery attach a couple of wires to it stick a couple of electrodes on your head and 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 run a very weak electric current through your through your brain and you'll change the excitability of the neurons that are on the path where, where the current is flowing and so you're not actually making them fire but you're making them a little easier or a little harder to to fire and uh, if you do that in the right area for example the motor cortex what, what the hope is that as you get tired, the signals 
that are from your motor cortex to your muscles start to get weaker, uh, the, the, whether this is the action of the central governor or some other mechanism. But for whatever reason, you're, even though you're, you think you're trying as hard, your brain is sending slightly weaker signals to your muscles. And so if, if you can enhance the excitability of that area of your brain, uh, then maybe you'll be able to maintain your effort for a little bit longer or make the effort feel a little easier uh, and thus more sustainable um, for, for a little bit longer. And, and you know, th there was the first study that I was aware of that showing that br this kind of brain stimulation could uh, enhance endurance was back in 2013. And since then, there's been a bunch of interest. There's a, there's a company in, in California that's now selling headphones that do brain stimulation. There have been a bunch of professional athletes who have tried it. There's certainly triathletes at Kona who were sponsored by, by Neuro, uh, by Halo, Halo Neuroscience. Halo, yeah. um, and uh, so the, the idea is out there. The evidence has been really shaky and mixed as, as other studies have tried to replicate these results. Just in the last few months, there's been some research from, uh, um, again, the, uh, the University of, uh, of Kent. Um, that kind of, I think, is clarifying what some of the issues are, what some of the methodological methodological problems are with some of the previous studies in terms of where you put the electrodes, um, things like that. So I actually think, I'm, if compared to if you had asked me this question two months ago, I would have been much more skeptical about whether it was going to turn out to be useful. Now I'm starting to, to be more of the opinion that, yeah, this is going to be a real effect, that, that brain stimulation is going to have... Uh, the ability to enhance endurance, and as a result, I think we're going to start need, needing need to start having some pretty serious conversations about whether it's something that should be, um, you know, restricted in athletic competition and what the long-term effects are, and, and and so on. Yeah, that's a super interesting uh, discussion on uh, the whole ethical side of things. But but is there a way to that you could test that? Because a doping test, obviously, you look for substances or traces of substances in the body. But uh, can you really? find traces of stimulation and uh if if you would were to to prohibit it from athletic performance yeah to, to my knowledge there isn't any way of, of testing for that um the, um i that's so when i asked one of the the researchers a couple of years ago and he said he as far as he knew there was no way to test for it i mean i would say that i don't know that that's a a total barrier to 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 restricting it. I mean, there's also no way of testing for whether you've you know cut a corner in a in, in a race, but it's still against the rules. So yeah, um, I, it, it's tricky. I mean, so another another comparable example would be something like baking soda, which was when, when I was an athlete in the uh, you know or at my most serious time in the in the 90s, baking soda was not a restricted substance because you can't ban baking soda with you banning like all or sodium bicarbonate. You'd be banning like muffins and things like that. So it doesn't make sense. But they, it's, they said it's a restricted technique. You can't do soda loading. They knew they couldn't test for it, but they just said, don't do it. People, some people did it. I have teammates who did it. Uh, but it, it was, strictly speaking, illegal, or at least uh, you know not, not allowed. Now, they, they ended up changing that rule uh, in the early, I think it was in the early 2000s, I think partly for the reason that they realized, look, if we can't test for it, then all we're doing is, is giving an advantage to people who are willing to be unethical. Um, so uh, maybe the same maybe the same thing is true for, for brain stimulation that there isn't a practical way of, of restricting it. I just and, and 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 maybe it doesn't need to be restricted. I'm not I'm not sort of presupposing that it's a bad thing, but I do. I I guess I just the the image in my mind is me as a 15 year old when I was you know getting into sports, super eager to succeed, you know, desperate to do anything to make myself get faster, and and you know make people like me and so on. 
that oh, man, I'd hate to think of myself feeling like I needed to, or feeling like I should be, you know, attaching a nine volt battery to my to my head as a as a as a teenager just because that would give me an edge in sport. So so and maybe that's a sort of a slippery slope argument. So I I, I don't know. I just if it if it works and it now it's starting to look like it really works, um, I think we should at least have the discussion. Yeah. So throughout the book, another thing that, as I mentioned, that you talk about is the Breaking 2 project where Nike and uh, three top marathoners, including Eliud Kipchoge, uh, were trying to break two hours for a marathon. And it was very close to successful with 2.25, I believe, being the result. And uh, yeah. can you talk a little bit about what they did? They did a couple of things too that can be attributed to these types of things related to to mind over muscle, if you want that, uh, to just make sure that they got every single uh, fraction of a percentage that they could. And, and can you give some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, so the first thing I would say is that as far as I know, and I, I you know, I, I, I should say, you know, Nike is a very big and secretive company. So it's, it's not like I, I, I don't know every detail that went on. But as, as far as I know, they did not have a sports psychologist or, an, or anyone explicitly working on the brain. And, you know, and in some ways that's surprising, but in other ways, one of the big takeaways from the project was that Elliot Kipchoge, in particular, is is you know he's like a, a mental master. He just he has he exudes confidence and belief. And I don't think it's I don't think it's a a, a you know a, a, he's just putting it on or trying to you know a show of bravado. He he gave all these interviews where he was explaining how you know people would like, people like me would ask him hey. Okay, you just you know you've run two o three. How are you going to change your training to get three minutes faster? And he would say, well, the, the training is going to be the same, but my 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 mind is going to be different, or the the difference between me and you is that I believe it's possible. And he was totally sincere in this stuff. At least the, I certainly had the impression that he was. So I feel like I came away from that experience feeling like, okay, maybe there's nothing that a sports psychologist can teach Elliot Kipchoge. But there's something that the rest of us should be trying to learn from Elliot Kipchoge, and that that's I think kind of the thing that good sports psychologists are trying to help help the rest of us develop. Some people are born, or for whatever reason, acquire really amazing mental skills, uh, but, and the rest of us should be trying to emulate or trying to figure out what it is. Um, so, so I think that you know that just that isn't something they so much did as just they got they got kind of lucky in that they had a guy like Kipchoge who has this incredible self-possession and self-belief I think to try something bold like that to be trying to, to go out and run the first half of the marathon in, in one hour and try and keep going I mean that's a scary scary thing for anyone who knows how that's going to feel um, and so it took someone very special to be able to do that and not and not freak out uh, I, I, another interesting thing, so, you know, they, they, they deployed a ton of science, uh, of some of which may have been useful, some of which not so much, but they were trying to do everything they could possibly think of to optimize this marathon. <clears throat> and uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is that some of the stuff they did was explicitly designed to help foster belief in the athletes, to help, not so much because, uh, so for, here's an example, drafting. They, they had done the calculations to, to tell them that drafting was going to be a significant uh, benefit. If they could get the athletes to run in a really tight formation, they would be able to get more of a benefit than most people had really realized. For, you know, Everyone knows in cycling, drafting is important, but people have mostly ignored it in running. 
so they did a bunch of wind tunnel tests. They did, um, you, you know, a, a bunch of sophisticated modeling to determine what the optimal draft formation was. But they also built, uh, basically, they hand built a kind of body-mounted wind detector, an anemometer that the runners, runners could mount on their chest. So they could get real-time feedback back on how much air resistance they were experiencing. And then they took these, they, they flew, the, the, the Nike team flew out to, to Kenya and to Ethiopia and, uh, and to, to Spain where Zersene Tedesi was training. And they had the athletes wear these, this body-mounted wind detector to say, okay, here, take this out. Let's go out and do a workout. Try running be right behind uh, you, you know, one of your training partners. See what happens when you move just a fraction of an inch to the left or right. See what happens when you drop back a little bit and let a gap open up. See how the wind resistance changes so you can understand. You, so the athletes aren't just being told this is what you need to do, but so they can feel and really experience, oh, this is, this is really important that I do this, and if I do this right, I will gain a benefit. And so they really tried very hard to get the athletes not just to, to sort of follow orders, but to be fully participants in understanding what, what they were doing, all the de why they were looking at all these details, and how it would help them. So, and then, you know, I think that, obviously, you know, it's, it's, you can say, oh, it really worked, because look how fast Kipchoge ran. Or you can say, boy, it really didn't work, because uh, Tedesi and Desissa didn't, didn't run that fast. So it's hard to draw conclusions from a thing like that. But I, I thought it was interesting that they were really focusing on that aspect of belief. Yeah, I started thinking about uh, this is kind of the reason why training plans are so important. Because even if it's a really cra crappy training plan, if you follow a training plan that gives you some belief, some of that belief that you talked about Kipchoge having, he believed that he could uh, run a sub two hour marathon. And that probably, if we talk about, for example, Samuel Marcora's model, that would allow him to, he, it would increase his motivation to to take on more perception of effort probably. And and the same is uh, probably true if you have a training plan, you, you have more belief in yourself and that will allow you to, through these different mechanisms that we were talking about, perform perform better and, and you feel that you have some some control over over it as well yeah i, th I think that's a really you know an, an, an important detail is that is actually that they didn't give the athletes a nike training plan they had they allowed them uh, they had them continue to work with their own coaches and so kipchoge for example he's been working with patrick sang his coach since he was a teenager and they have an incredibly good tight close relationship total trust like when i asked kipchoge about his training, like what's he going to do for the to, to run two hours? The first thing he said is, "I'm going to do whatever my coach tells me to." Because he, he has he, so he's not worried about, oh, should I have you know, 90 seconds rest or two minutes rest between my mile repeats? He, that's that's not on his radar. He's he just does whatever his coach tells him. And I, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. Like another thing, looking back on myself as an athlete, I was always someone who questioned and wanted to know why and thought about the details and that was really helpful in some ways but in other ways i think it caused me to overthink things and i, I certainly had I, I knew i had friends or training partners who who were much more just kind of like just tell me what to do and i'll do it and they didn't worry about those details and increasingly over time i've come to believe that uh, you know yes it's important to have a good training plan like it's you know you don't just go out and do random runs but once you've once you've chosen a training plan, you just you should really just knuckle down and do it and, and put your faith in it, um, and and not constantly be worried or second guessing whether you've you have you know 50 percent too much rest between repeats or whether you should be doing three more miles or three less or like 
those details are less important than putting your faith and uh, like as exactly as you said putting your faith in a training program and thinking i have done exactly what i need to do to make myself the best athlete possible today so therefore i'm going to go out and run fearlessly uh, in this race if you can give one piece of advice to the listeners based on uh, the research that you've done for this book and and everything that you you found out then what would that be that they can apply in in their training or racing to perform better in endurance sports i think the first thing to to know is just to 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 take in that knowledge that there is always you always have more in the tank there is always a reserve and and that you can access that reserve so knowing that i think is a really powerful piece of knowledge and then in terms of the practical takeaway it's then okay work on ways of accessing that reserve and then maybe if if you're if you're saying one piece of advice i would say try motivational self talk try learning to consciously control your uh, internal monologue during races so that so that when the when push comes to shove and you reach the hard point of the race the 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 words that are echoing in your head aren't oh my god this is hard and you know saying that over and over again instead you're saying i'm ready for this i'm ready for this i'm ready for this so i i think that's a a pretty pretty good place to start brilliant uh let's move into the rapid fire questions first i need to go and get my charger and i'll try to remember to edit this out but uh, <laughs> otherwise we'll have a silent minute but i'm at six percent so uh, just give me a minute alex and i'll be right back yeah What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, I guess I'd have to go old school and go back to Once a Runner, the the great running novel by John L. Parker Jr. Uh, it's not a science book, but sometimes I think the passion is more important than the science. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Probably the biggest single impact on my running was uh, a pair of big fleece mittens that look like boxing gloves. I have terrible circulation. It took me a long time to, to understand that it's okay. It's actually possible to have warm hands while running in the winter. Yeah, and in the Canadian winter on top of that. Oh, it's bad right now. <laughs> Who's somebody in endurance sports that you admire and look up to? Uh, I'd say right now, the role model I'm thinking of right now is David Epstein, who's the author of The Sports Gene. He wrote uh, you know, a science of sports book that was really nuanced and complex and uh and it's still sold well so i'm hoping to uh, to emulate all aspects of that perfect thank you so much alex for your generous uh, time giving us your time and uh, telling us about endure your book and where can the listeners uh, find out about the book and and go and get one for themselves which uh, i would highly recommend definitely Probably best place to, to follow what I'm up to is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is is Sweat Science, all, um, all one word, uh, and I there's a link to the book from there and and to all you know all of my latest articles. Um, the book should be available pretty much anywhere on at, from bookstores. It's published by HarperCollins uh, out on February 6th, I think. So um, yeah, I hope uh, I hope I really enjoyed chatting with you, and I hope uh, hope people enjoy it. Perfect. Uh, Best of luck with the book launch. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon, I hope. Okay, thanks, Michael. So that's another super interesting episode done on things related to the brain, the mind and the psychology of endurance sports. And yeah, as I said, I don't know if it's just me, but all of these kinds of episodes, they just always seem to be that little bit extra fascinating to me. I'm just such a nerd for this topic. And I think that Alex really summed up the take-home message brilliantly. So I'll just repeat that here. 
just be aware that uh, in your triathlons, uh, and let's let's caveat with with that. Uh, may, maybe not in some of the extreme examples that you'll read about in Alex's stories in the book. But in your triathlons, there's always a little extra held back in reserve. Uh, so really, really be focused on trying to tap into as much as possible of that reserve. There's always a little bit more that you can get out of yourself. And as Alex said, that motivational self-talk may be the best way to do that. As we talked about before, of course, you can't just show up on race day and and do it and start uh, peppering yourself and doing the motivational self-talk. You need to practice it in training as as with anything, as with nutrition and hydration. Uh, And the same goes for motivational self-talk. So start today. We also talked about this with Kerry Cheadle in episode 97. So check out that as well. Of course, check out the related listening in episodes 17 and episode 43. Episode 17 is one of my favorite episodes ever. It's called Brain Training, Brain Training and Psychobiology of Endurance Sports with Samuele Marcola. Uh, and you heard about uh, Samuele in this interview. Episode 43 is Psychology and the Central Governor Model with Professor Tim Noakes, who you also heard from. And uh, you can find all of the show notes from today's episode on thattriathlonshow.com. But really, I'd rather you go to Amazon or wherever you want to get your book and get Alex's book directly. It's such a great read. And just a summary of an interview that in itself is a summary of the book, if that makes sense, can't quite do it justice. So the book is called Endure, Mind, Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Go and get it today and you won't be disappointed. Then you can go to thattriathlonshow.com and uh, and comment on this episode if you have any thoughts, ideas, questions or anything similar. Now the next episode on the podcast is another very motivational and inspirational one but uh, in a different way. It's with Karen Smyers, who raced professionally until she was 49 years old. She's one of the legends of triathlon, placed in the top 10 in Kona as a 45-year-old. And we will talk about, about her story, but we'll also talk specifically about how she stayed so competitive in her 40s. And we'll give tips for masters athletes, how you, as an age group triathlete, can use Karen's learnings for getting fast or staying fast with age so that's a brilliant one i've already done the interview so look forward to that subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already to make sure that you get the show notes as they are get the episodes as they are released i should say and of course share it with your friends and family and anybody who wants to listen to them really that always helps Thank you, finally, for supporting the show to our sponsors, Triathlon Corner. You can find them on triathlon-corner.store. It's an international web shop, but also if you are in Helsinki, if you are visiting or you live in Helsinki, when you need new tri-gear just, or just want to hang out and, and uh, knock out a couple of hours in the great company of uh, Jan, the owner, and other triathletes, go and hang out in their cool brick-and-mortar store in a great triathlon environment with other like-minded people. And uh, yeah, just hang out there. It's a cool place. But again, the web shop, which ships internationally, is on triathlon-corner.store. And thank you as well to Precision Hydration, 
Take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to find out how much you sweat and how much sodium your sweat contains. That will allow you to get the electrolyte strength you need tailored for your specific physiology and that will help you get the most out of your next endurance performance event. So also use the free box, uh, use the discount code that triathlon show to get a free box of precision hydration product when you check them out on precisionhydration.com. And thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.